Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. This podcast will focus on the school-to-prison pipeline, which highlights the link between educational practices and the increase in black boys entering the juvenile justice system. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Amir Whitaker, a lawyer and researcher with the UCLA Center for Civil Rights Remedies and founder of Project Knucklehead, a youth empowerment organization, as well as Daniel Lawson, a lawyer and the director of the UCLA Center for Civil Rights and Remedies. Amir and Daniel, thanks for joining us. Before we get started with any questions, I'd like to invite you both to tell us a little bit about yourself. So starting with you, Amir. Sure. Well, I'm a research associate with the Center for Civil Rights Remedies here at the Civil Rights Project at UCLA. And prior to this, I was a civil rights lawyer with the Southern Poverty Law Center in our Alabama and Florida office, primarily working on education cases. And uh, most of my clients were black males. Um, We filed a lot of class-wide complaints um, challenging the school-to-prison pipeline. And I'm also an educator uh, with a nonprofit called Project Knucklehead that works with youth and low-income communities and youth and juvenile justice programs. Uh, So I also, through my nonprofit, um, work primarily with black males um, as well. And before that, I was a teacher in New Jersey, California, and Florida. Thank you. And how about you, Dan? I'm the director of the Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA Civil Rights Project. Before it was at UCLA, was uh, the Civil Rights Project at Harvard University. And I started there at nine, in 1999. And my first year, I was also, I had two jobs. So I was representing individual students, mostly of color, um, poor students, um, who were, had issues with the school district as a, as a legal services attorney. And before that, I taught elementary school for about 10 years. I also, before that, was a struggling musician. And um, anyhow, so that's sort of my my background. Great. Thank you both. I, I love hearing how each of our individual trajectories leads us into this work, and I really think it's important for this discussion. So just to get started, given all of your experiences, I'd love to just hear from you, what is the school-to-prison pipeline? Many people's entry point is around school discipline, but I really like to take a step back, even though I do talk a lot about school discipline, and to think about the inequity in educational opportunity. It's a much broader issue that contributes to this flow of students of color, especially black males, but also students of color disability with disabilities from school where their educational needs are inadequately met and as a result, oftentimes their, their outcomes, academic and behaviorally, uh, spiral downwards. That leads to increased likelihood of dropping out of school, increased likelihood of being truant, being unsupervised at home because of discipline, and greater involvement in the juvenile justice system, and, and, and eventually, you know, incarcerated as adult. And, you know, there's this larger issue with 
mass incarceration. Many are familiar with the book about the new Jim Crow. But I also think that there's a legacy of structural racism that also has contributed mightily to what this phenomenon that we call the school to prison pipeline. Great, and I agree. And I think it's important to note that it's a system that pushes students by virtue of the schools they attend or, you know, different demographic factors. It increases their likelihood to end up in the criminal justice system. So you can take two students, the exact same behavior, the exact same academic outcomes, but depending on where they are, their likelihood to end up in prison could multiply. The same behavior in one school could lead to a different outcome in another. And I'd also add, you know, just to be more specific about how resource inequities contribute. For example, I was an inexperienced teacher, and I was sending kids to the principal's office right and left. But I was in a system where I got support and training and learned how to manage my classroom much better. But if we have fewer systematically exposed to inexperienced teachers at a much higher rate, and if those teachers are in systems where they're not getting the training and the support they need to be successful with a diverse range of kids and exhibiting a range of behaviors, including kids with disabilities, I should add, then it's more likely that they're going to kick them out of their class or maybe unfairly identify them as having special needs when really the needs were for the training of the teacher to be more effective in, in, in delivering instruction and managing the classroom. So these mm. inequities, and it's not just to blame teachers. There are, you know, the other thing that's important to realize is the, the, the principals and other school leaders that adopt really harsh discipline policies are often um, are not found in middle-class, you know, white communities in those schools. They're most often found in schools and districts serving poor kids and disproportionately kids of color. And this concept that we, you know, we can only educate the obedient kids, there's really lots of overlaps with this a legacy of discrimination, but also this concept of teaching obedience is, I think, part of it, so that kids who are you know, the next Malcolm X, kids who are bright and challenging authority, who would thrive in an atmosphere where they are challenged and the expectations were high, when they're not getting that, there's, you know, a high level of frustration. Those are the kids that are often are getting pushed out because they don't fit the mold. They don't follow the dress code. They won't walk silently in line and they'll question their teachers when their teachers may not be effective taking it away from simply just disciplinary measures, but really looking at um, what are some of the systemic issues, and you highlighted structural racism as well as resource inequity. And I often hear that conversation framed in a different way where it places blame on the individual students, the families, as well as the communities. And as you said, it's not about blame, but it's really, at taking, it's really about taking an honest look at what are the issues, especially the systemic issues within these communities, and why does it cause the students to have these kinds of interactions with the teachers in terms of the automatic response that this student isn't fitting into what I expect. These expectations um, are not being met, and thus they're in a way being ostracized. And I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about 
for a young black boy that experience? What is that like for them effectively being labeled in at such an early point in their lives? So with black boys, particularly, it starts very early. You know, research shows as early as pre-K, actually. Black boys are 19% of the pre-K enrollment, but about half of the students receiving suspensions. And, uh, you know, imagine suspending a four-year-old um, from school and, you know, how much does behavior vary that much, you know, when you've only been on earth for four years across race, across gender and, and such. So from a very early age, schools and, and some institutions aren't necessarily a, a welcoming place for black males. So we you know, schools are supposed to be places of opportunity, places of hope that empower you with skills to grow as a leader and contribute to society. But that this changes. Uh, actually, a U.S. Department of Education study, um, they looked at just some of the beliefs of young black boys, and they found that in preschool, about 90% look forward to school. But by the time students Entered middle school, you know, other research shows that there's disengagement occurs and something happens along the way that erodes that relationship. Uh, and, and schools aren't equipped to meet all of the social emotional needs of students. So, you know, when a student of color is there, and we, we research also demonstrates that. Just because students of color are suspended more doesn't necessarily mean they're more likely to commit different things, you know, infractions in school. So you can look at schools, school fights occur all across the country, you know, adolescent problems and misbehavior happens all over, but where, as, as Dan mentioned, you know, where do we view the obedient model? You know, and I, I like to think back to my own high school experience. Um, I grew up, you know, went to public schools in New Jersey, and in the early 90s, um, a movie came out about the school, Westside High, New Jersey, that was about 15 miles away. Uh, the Lean on Me School with Morgan Freeman portraying Joe, Joe Clark, this principal who walked around schools with, you know, a bat and a bullhorn, um, thinking that, you know, if you have unruly males and, and black males, that, that, that's how you keep them in line. When we know developmentally that's not really appropriate, but that school of thought spread. And, and by the time it got to my high school, I remember when metal detectors were installed and, you know, this would cause us to take, to miss about an hour of instruction in the morning, um, you know, with 1,500 students going through metal detectors. But it was a loss of instruction that administrators thought, was worth it, even though I still don't recall any instance of a gun being in school or someone being harmed, you know. So uh, with, with black boys, there's an exception for what type of force can be used, what type of rules, and as then, well, uh, maybe it was on, we were talking about it before we started recording, but there's sort of an assumption with black males, even if you're high achieving, that you know, something could always happen and you're always on alert or you're always under a microscope. Yeah, and I, I'd like to add, you know, going back to preschool, many of those listening may have heard about the recent study in Yale, at Yale University of preschool teachers. They um, pre-rated the behavior of four different students, two boys, two girls, one black, one white. 
and they showed them simultaneously on the screen, and they they sort of uh, they preempted the observers, which were all preschool teachers, include white and black preschool teachers, and said, we think that um, we may be able to predict problematic behavior, so we want you to watch the screen for possible signs of, of trouble. And when they were prompted this way, sort of activated stereotypes is one theory, because by and large, black and white preschool teachers focus mostly on the black males. Now, remember, none of these, these are all preschool kids, and none of them were misbehaving in any way, and none of them were about to misbehave in any way. So it was a, a ruse, but they tracked the eyes, you know, so these were very scientific, neurologically determined outcomes, so that, and they could see who they're watching. So if they're watching black boys from four years old, thinking, expecting them to misbehave, well... First of all, even if they all misbehave at the same rate, you're going to see more misbehavior from the black boys because you're watching them much more closely than anybody else. This is sort of evidence of implicit bias. None of these teachers had any others, you know, verbal or otherwise when they answered questionnaires and stuff, that, that they were biased against black boys, per se, um, in, in, not consciously, but when when prompted – to expect negative behavior, they all watch the black males. Now imagine if that starts in preschool. Imagine how those black kids feel as they grow up. You, you know, you mentioned you know higher expectations. Actually, oftentimes the problem is expecting bad behavior. So you often see what you're expecting. It affects your perception. The impact of implicit bias is not just about the adults, but there is a an impact on on black students and black males in particular, that I think is, it, it, it accumulates so that by the time kids are in middle school or high school, it, you know, the, their relationship to school is maybe very different than a, a white boy's experience. There are a whole bunch of charter schools recently that took this off their website. There are a lot of schools, not just charter schools, but I've noticed it in particular with charter schools, where they have on their website, their guiding principle for their school climate is broken windows. Now, those familiar with broken windows will know that this is a crime intervention philosophy where you have to enforce to the hilt every little rule. Why would you use crime intervention theory that's actually now associated with the racial oppression in places like Ferguson why would you adopt that as your guiding philosophy for setting up your school environment? You do not see broken windows, I guarantee, in any middle-class white schools. But it's really emblematic of what we're talking about here, the fact that they would – really – the theory is that if not for what we do, these kids are criminals. Kind of a savior complex in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these types of policies aren't developmentally appropriate and they actually exacerbate the problem, right? So if you remove a four-year-old from school for, you know, let's say they didn't share or they kicked another student or something like that, and you simply just remove them from the learning environment instead of actually addressing the issue and, and modeling, you know, the, the appropriate behavior, uh, the problem actually gets worse, right? And, and studies show that out-of-school suspensions and other punitive discipline policies actually increase 
the likelihood of students, you know, dropping out, um, entering the juvenile justice system, et cetera. So, you know, practitioners working with black males will often have to undo just the years of, of failed interventions and, and basically mm -hmm. people doing what's most convenient and, and just removing the kid and, and using Band-Aids on bullet wounds until they can get over it. Listening to you both speak about it and just thinking about the systemic issues that are within schools and the just the experiences of a young black boy that's in this environment, it sounds traumatic. It sounds like something that even on an individual level, it's hard for them to really combat with and really gather support and resources around themselves to make it through that type of environment. And you really spoke of the, the social and emotional needs of these boys not being met. And that really hit home with me because I'm wondering, what are those social and emotional needs? What would you pinpoint and tell practitioners that they should really be addressing? You can just look at the structure of a school um, the funding and just where resources are put, and it's not equipped to deal with that. And and actually, the accountability systems even, right, because schools are only accountable for academic, you know, now we're starting to move more towards the school climate stuff, um, and I'm not arguing for increased accountability, but lots of studies show that, you know, success in life in general, those social-emotional outcomes are actually more predictive. So, you know, you can have an issue, you can have an anger management issue, you, you can have, you know, a self-confidence issue and just other problems that will be barriers. They'll become barriers to academic issues, right? But they may not be met in schools because there are over 1.6 million students in schools in America that have access to a school resource officer or have, you know, police officers in their schools with no counselors, Yeah. right? So. If your school doesn't, isn't equipped to meet your social-emotional needs, what is a police officer going to do? They have handcuffs and, and pepper spray. You know, what training have they received to respond to you? So I think there are an array of social-emotional outcomes and skills. Um, I believe it's CASEL, K or C-A-S-E-L. Um, they create these standards for social-emotional learning, and, and some schools are starting to adopt them. Um, and some districts are starting to adopt them, but it, it's kind of like going above and beyond because it's, there's no designated person in a school to address that, right? You have your algebra teacher, you have your social studies teacher, you have your gym teacher, but who's just helping the kid to ensure that they're ready for life? But with black males in particular, we need social-emotional learning just to undo all the negative things that we see in the media, that we see and hear in music, you know, so as educators and practitioners, we often have to tell our students something different than they'll hear when they turn on the radio and, and hear a song and hear a black male, right? Um, and and there's really no, especially in large urban schools, and this is why a lot of students fall by the wayside, and to be honest, this is why a lot of students feel school doesn't really uh, – apply to them and really speak to them because those it, it's basically it's like the elephant in the room like why aren't we talking about this stuff that's important for life or why why aren't we being equipped with things to help me today and, and why am I being punished you know what, what's going on why are they so concerned 
with me wearing a belt <laughs> and not, <laughs> you know, concerned with anything else. So, but there are a lot of ways to do the social emotional learning. In Project Knucklehead, we do uh, do this a lot through music and poetry, just because it that creative outlet basically gives a license. We've had a lot of students that were more honest in, in their poet in their writing, creative writing, and their if they want to write hip hop or whatever. Um, it, it basically gives them a license to say, all right, I'm angry right now, or I'm, you know what, I'm dealing with trauma right now. Um, this just happened to my mom, and it's on my mind, you know, and just giving them that opportunity to talk about it there and, and listen. Because where, where else will a 15-year-old who's dealing with trauma get it? If, if, if they haven't been fully diagnosed with something and, you know, given services, and, and they're just one of the students that just needs extra support, more likely than not, they won't get that in school. And if, you know, they're not in, lucky enough to be in the community with, like, wraparound services, they're just going to fall to the wayside. And I, I'd like to sort of jump in, too, because this brings up what about, you know, kids who do have some disabilities, especially kids with emotional disturbance. So without even getting to the racial piece, kids with emotional disturbance are the ones that you would think the problematic behavior would be what's called the manifestation of their disability. Yet, they are suspended at double the rate of any other kids with disabilities. So their, their suspension rate, K-12, is something like 25% nationally. That's just outrageous. And then if you were to add black students with emotional disturbance, first of all, you, there's concern that maybe some are misdiagnosed. Maybe they're kids with autism or some other issues, or maybe... Mm -hmm disability that went undiagnosed, and then it now looks like emotional disturbance because the kid is just so uh, upset and fraught with anger because, you know, he's been struggling for all these years and no one, you know, has supported him. So, but the point is that the kids with emotional disturbance are getting kicked out and black students with emotional disturbance at the highest rate of any subgroup. It's just off the charts. I think at the secondary level, it's either 34 or 36 percent of all black male students secondary level uh, with a disability were suspended at least once. Out of, that's nationally. So we have school districts where it's 80 percent, 90 percent of these kids being suspended out of school. How you can say that's not related to their disability is, is beyond me, and it's outrageous. So it really says that the, the systems of special education and the supports provided are inadequate. And label on, uh, and and then layer on top of that, you know, there are we talked about inequities in terms of teacher preparation and training and supports for teachers. Well, the same goes for the special education teachers. So oftentimes, in a uh, in a district or a school serving high percentages of poor kids of color, you will find the least trained um, special educators as well. So, I, you know, I we were dealing with a school district here in Massachusetts where. The kids weren't being suspended by the regular ed teachers. It was the special educators that were suspending kids right and left. It just, you know, it was literally around 80%. So there's a huge need for the training and the supports, and it's often lacking in all schools, but most profoundly in schools serving kids of color and kids who come from poor families. And this is just... Uh, it's unlawful. That's the other thing that's really important. Um, and then just, uh, I think, getting back to something um, I think Jason or, or Amir mentioned earlier, 
I think their role in terms of counselors and service providers is bigger than just meeting the your your you know the students that you're working with their individual needs. It really means that there's an important role to play in and in pushing back against the system. If you're in a school district where they're spending more on cops and counselors, it's important to point that out. It's important at internal meetings to say, well, we should be looking at the data on discipline and kids of color. We shouldn't just be, you know, talking about the problem kids and who got arrested. We should be really looking at the data and thinking about the support. A lot of uh, folks that have done work with school districts find that it's not always. It's not like everybody equally needy in terms of the adults, in terms of the training. It may be a select group of teachers that are doing most of the suspension and pushing out of kids as well. And so, and I don't believe that there are throwaway kids or throwaway teachers. So the first thing is to get those teachers the support they need to change their their practices. For one, the students definitely don't have as many supports as they need, um, but we can never discount the fact that the teachers and the administrators often don't have the support that they need to do a great job um, either. Um, right. So you have these two issues that are effectively working against each other, and in either case, it's to the detriment of the student overall. That's right. Right, and the system is broken, right, or perhaps some would say like it, it's working the way it's designed because we know the kind of supports and resources that would help children thrive, right? But it's important that the practitioners listening never become a cog in that broken system, you know, because mm -hmm. they, there will be structural barriers to them completing, you know, their job duties. You know, there could be high caseload, there could be less resources, limited support, uh, no training, and, that, and that's why podcasts like this are really important. But it's important that you know they still, you know, never give up, and like Dan said, become advocates. Because in, in most school settings, any mental health professional is really the expert on student behavior. Teachers, unfortunately, we're, we're not required to get that much education in adolescent development. Uh, and, and that sort of stuff. So no one understands behavior better in school environments um, than, than the mental health professionals. So it's important to call a principal or, you know, disciplinarian on what they're doing. They're removing a kid from the environment or doing something that's going to exacerbate the problem to let them know. It's interesting um, framing it in that way that there's there's power there in terms of the folks that are on the ground working with students every day, the counselors that are really the experts within the school uh, becoming advocates. Um, and if they are already advocates, then getting more of their colleagues on the same page in terms of this is what we're trying to fight for, as well as here are the issues within our school and within our community, and really just trying to find steps to solutions and really just trying to help these students in the best way that they can. And in that vein, I'm really interested to hear more about some of these policies and practices within schools that really do a disservice to these students. So particularly, you hear a lot about zero tolerance, and I'd love to have you both speak on that if you can. Yeah, so, um, well, two things. So I think it's also important to know a lot of the research that we've been focused on recently is identifying remedies or alternatives that work. 
So it's not just zero tolerance is bad, which it is, but it's not in a vacuum. The fact is that there are school districts around the country that are low suspending, that are serving kids of color, kids who are poor, and so forth, and they're not suspending kids right and left. So in fact, they're more on the, you know, it's somewhat arbitrary, but in our research, we've looked at every school in the country and found that they're actually more lower suspending schools than high suspending ones. And oftentimes we'll find a huge range of suspension rates within the same district. So sometimes the answers, the antidote, if you will, to what's not going well in your school district might be in another school in the same district or in a district right next door. And it's, it's, some of this is not that complicated. You know, in, in uh, Baltimore City, one of the first things that Superintendent Andres Alonso, he's now a professor at Harvard, but one of the first things he did is he stopped suspending kids for truancy and dress codes and all these minor things. And he also said any suspension more than five days had to go through the central office. So um, it's really important that um, we, we think about this, the, the problems, but also understand that there are real solutions that work. And these, these are not academic theories. They're in practice all across the country. But in terms of the harsh discipline, if you ask a school or district, what's your zero tolerance policy? Maybe they only label zero tolerance for you know weapons and drugs, but really they have a, in, a very low tolerance or intolerant attitude that's represented in their code of conduct. So the third time you're truant, you get suspended, which is outrageous. You should never be suspended for truancy. There's no deterrent value. There's no rational basis for the punishment doing. is matching the crime. You miss school, so you miss school. Right. It's right. crazy. It's outrageous. <laughs> Uh, dress code violations too. You know, same issues. There are uh, there are lots of minor offenses. There are many states that collect data on by type of offense. It's not the federal data, but that may change soon. But it, uh, in many states where they do, we, the vast majority of of uh, school suspensions are for minor offenses: disruption, defiance. You know, kids getting out of the seat, or often also repeated violations. So something that isn't suspendable the first time, it is the third time, which doesn't really make any sense. What we really need is more adult interventions and to help kids to learn their appropriate behavior. So what does work, we've, there's in our book um, on, on the school to prison pipeline called Closing the School Discipline Gap, we have worked with scholars around the country to look at what works. Restorative practices in, in Denver uh, was adopted slowly, started with pilot programs, but it, because sort of success breeds success, eventually they also got some state funding to expand it, and it, it dramatically reduced suspension rates, but it also improved behavior because it, it's a way to hold kids more accountable. It does require training, and there were restorative justice coaches and so forth to work with teachers but ultimately, it also helps the kids, you know, if a kid was bullied, for example, it's a way to confront the bully in a way that not only helps the kid who was bullied uh, feel better, but also helps the bully so that the, the behavior doesn't reoccur. Um, you hear a lot of stories about, you know, these sorts of issues being resolved and the behavior ending through this, these restorative practices, which is really about, again, holding the kids accountable but in a way that says you're an important part of this community, we want you to be successful here. Um, uh, there's many other kinds of effective programs, but I'll 
I'll turn it over to Amir to talk about some others. You know, further with zero tolerance, it's important to just counter that because it's it's basically an extreme, right? And even if the district, you know, in the code of conduct just outlines because they're federal zero tolerance requirements and usually state, you know, if a kid brings a gun or something like Dan said. But, you know, I think of this story in this one district that we filed a complaint against. There were two principals at high schools not far from each other serving the same communities, essentially. One school, the principal had a strict zero tolerance. Like, I think sagging pants were like a pet peeve of his. So anyone who, you know, had their pants sagging, the least bit, you know, they would be sent home or really placed into this warehouse in school suspension, glorified babysitting sort of thing. The principal around the corner had the same issue serving the same students, but instead, I believe he did like some donation box and got 25 bucks, went to the thrift shop and got a bunch of belts. And the policy was if you come to school without a belt, you grab one and you put it back in at the end of the day. So it's the same behavior, just you don't have to tolerate it, you, you know, and you can still hold the students accountable, but there are ways to respond without, you know, depriving the students of, of their education. Um, but like Dan said, there are a lot of evidence-based solutions, you know, that go in the face of zero tolerance. Actually, in the resource guide that we're attaching to this, it's a two-page document from Teaching Tolerance, and it's called the A through Zs of responsive discipline. And every letter from A to Z, you know, outlines different things that can be done, you know, to address issues. So the letter M, for instance, mediation, which, you know, similar to restorative justice and such. So there are all sorts of ways to respond. And oftentimes what I found in districts is, you know, just understand that children will be children, right? and respond in ways that actually teach the kid instead of simply punishing the kid. Now, we know you can take a basic psychology class and see that punishment alone never improves behavior. Instead, it actually creates resentment, harms the relationship, and contributes to the disengagement that black males experience in school settings. If, if they feel like they, they're constantly under a microscope and when I'm in this environment, even though the focus is supposed to be education, the focus is more on making sure I follow rules, oftentimes it, you know, it requires administrators to step back because one of the studies in our book that Dan mentioned, the closing discipline gap, one of the studies found that actually one of the most predictive factors to a school's suspension rate is the administrator in it. You know, it's more predictive than race, the race of the students, and a lot of other things because, you know, some schools function as an island where that principal, that assistant principal who's enforcing uh, discipline can basically do what they want and until, basically until parents challenge it or students challenge it or someone at the district finds out. Their philosophy on how you respond to adolescent misconduct is the most determinative of how many students will be suspended. Schools can implement restorative practices. They can implement positive behavioral supports and interventions and different things, but there must be that cultural shift in the way you view adolescent misconduct. And this is, again, where the mental health professionals are the experts. 
in this area and understand, like, look, this is kind of what children do. You know, if you watch National Geographic or Discovery Channel and you see little tiger cubs playing around, um, <laughs> they're doing things, they're experimenting, and they're, you know, they're annoying their parents, lions or whatever, and it's just a part of development, right? But for whatever reason, when it comes to children, in the 21st century, we have this view that stand in line, get in order, and basically fall in, and, and that's not developmentally appropriate. Yeah, so, and I'd like to add, I think one of the reasons we've seen sort of zero tolerance or just sort of widespread intolerance of school discipline, especially in schools serving kids of color and poor kids, is that there's this idea, well, we've got to kick out the bad kids so the good kids can learn. So there's already this mm-hmm. criminalization of the youth that some kids, you know, it, treating education rather than as a right and equal educational opportunity as a civil right, it's really treating education as a privilege. And since our resources are scarce, going back to the resource inequity, we are only going to really be able to educate the good kids and the good kids are the obedient kids. So that's part of what I think is fueling it, but also part of what's fueling it, even, you know, very few educators would, you know, consciously say that's what they're thinking is, but they often think that suspensions have no cost, right? We're just sending them home for a couple of days. We're giving the teacher a break. We're sending a clear message to the parents, for example, ignoring the fact that if you really think the parents are the problem, then how is sending the kid home going to be the solution? That's especially true, you know, where kids have experienced trauma in their homes or whatever. I, I think, you know, oftentimes it is, I think it's a false blame on the parents. But where, you know, obviously there are some dysfunctional families. So in, in those situations, you know, it's just outrageous that you would think that kicking a kid out of school for a few days, send them home, spend more time with this in this family that you already have judged as dysfunctional, how is that? It's really not a solution at all. Um, but the, the expense part of it, we have a new report, um, well, one that we released a couple years ago on the high cost, actually it was this summer, the high cost of uh, harsh discipline. And it really shows there's a tremendous economic burden. And we adjusted for all the reasons that kids drop out of school and showed that being suspended predicts an increase in the uh, failure to graduate rate, depending on which state, but is 7 to 14 points. That's a huge economic burden because non-graduates economically are much more likely to uh, have lower income. That means they're contributing fewer tax dollars. They're much more likely to need social welfare. They're more likely to commit crimes, more likely to wind up incarcerated and so forth. And so we've calculated those costs using um, uh, economists like um, Clive Belfield and working off Henry Levin, Hank Levin's work, um, and put a a cost on that. And we have a new report for California that gives that estimate of the cost of suspensions down to the district level. So there's a real economic cost to these sort of harsh discipline policies that's, you know, you hear sometimes, oh, we should invest in schools, not prisons, but there's real dollars and cents in terms of the cost of the community that's totally overlooked when folks are deciding on whether to invest in social workers and counselors or cops, for example. So it's really important, I think, that folks understand 
that suspending kids out of school is not a cost-free response. And I've actually had clients, parents, that have lost their jobs or had to rearrange their lives because, you know, the school's kicking their child out so much. I had one grandmother who was taking care of her black boy, and he was basically, it was at the school actually where the principal didn't tolerate sagging pants. She missed a critical doctor's appointment because because of this. And then one student who went to the school I taught at in Miami was suspended for 10 days, which if you think about it, that's two weeks of school, right? If you follow a baseball team or a show, you know, um, and you miss two weeks of it or 10 opportunities, especially if it's something like Game of Thrones or Empire, like you're going to be completely mm-hmm. lost, you know? Miss 10 right. Yankee games and see what happens. And there's research that shows that three days of three or more days of absence lowered the fourth grade reading scores by a full grade level. There's a much larger negative impact on from suspending kids out of school than most people realize. Exactly, but this this story of this mother, her son was suspended for ten days, so she couldn't provide supervision. So she sent him to Central Florida to be with his father for two weeks, and unfortunately he was murdered there. You may have heard of the story, Trayvon Martin. Right. Um, he was suspended from a Miami-Dade public school for 10 days when he was sent to Sanford, Florida, encountered George Zimmerman, a gentleman who wouldn't have been in our schools, right? We protect our students from people like that. Schools are supposed to be a safe haven. I mean, even with my problems in school growing up, you know, I still had relationships with teachers that, you know, allowed me to at least feel welcome in their class and, you know, it was a sanctuary at times, you know. So especially with students with disabilities, you know, when we punish them and deprive them of their education, remove them from the learning environment, there are lots of consequences that we really don't account for I mean, don't think about it because it's really – it's usually that administrator and that individual teacher saying, I can't deal with this right now, not my problem Mm -hmm. right now. But then it becomes society's problem. It becomes the family's problem more so. And like Dan said, oftentimes from the beginning, it's something that really doesn't require you to remove the kit. It's interesting, and it seems very counterintuitive that the idea of removing a student because of some type of minor issue or even that removing the student because they're missing too much school. It it just seems like common sense that that's not going to work, but everything that you're saying leads me to think that it's, it's very reactionary, and it's also within the context of implicit bias. Simply, this is what we're taught, this is what we're used to doing, and having this expectation that we're weeding out these quote unquote bad students so that everyone else could learn and benefit from this environment when you're doing all of the students in the entire community a disservice, and there are some real-world implications for not only the individuals, their families, but also some economic concerns that, you know, frankly, before speaking with you both today, I had no idea that that's what was going on. One of the things that often will come up when, when I'm presenting, you know, the research, people will say, uh, well, what if the black kids did, you know, maybe there was a study black kids didn't, misbehave more. But what if they did misbehave more? Then that justifies the fact that they're suspended more often. Missing the whole point that we've been talking about is that suspension is not an educationally sound response. 
you know, all the stuff about broken windows, no excuses, harsh discipline, zero tolerance, there is no legitimate research to support that this actually makes anyone feel safer. So there's a chapter in our book where, you know, the bringing in more police and metal detectors, actually the ratings of safety went down. That developed close relationships with parents and and invested in in working with teacher uh, student and teacher parent relationships felt safer even you know when they were the schools serving the most uh, kids from the highest crime neighborhoods in Chicago so that you know there is a lot of evidence on the other side that zero tolerance is ineffective and counterproductive and there has never been any research to support this other counter narrative that oh we have to kick out the bad kid that, that that's going to actually work in fact, there is a recent study that was cited. Uh, it was a group of researchers that said, well, we really don't know what works. So that was sort of the main theme. And they cited a study from Alachua County, Florida. And basically, the, the researchers had looked at kids who were exposed to domestic violence in their home as a proxy for misbehaving kids. So let's just assume that's true. Kids who have been exposed to domestic violence misbehave more. And they were looking at the peer effects. And they did this whole analysis showing that if you were exposed to three or more kids who had experienced domestic violence, you were going to have uh, lower achievement. So, but what they, what the, the those folks citing the study didn't realize is that Alachua County, Florida, was in the top quintile of high suspending school districts in the nation. So they were kicking these kids out right and left. They weren't providing the supports for these kids. And so this idea that, oh, you know, it's going to be chaotic unless we use suspension, it's probably just the opposite. It's probably these harsh environments actually maintain a level of of, um, lack of trust that is damaging to the school environment and damaging not to only the kids who are suspended, but to all the kids, it creates an environment where there is less trust. People feel less safe, not more safe. And this is where the school to prison pipeline really overlaps with the criminal justice system because it's really just a, it's a feeder into it, right? But we know that our criminal justice system, you can look at the recidivism rates, right? Um, the fact that you know, someone leaving a facility will make 10% less and face all of this discrimination, um, the lack of services available. I believe there's a prison on strike right now for all they want is education. I'm trying to remember the state, but they, you know, and I'm not advocating for prison riots or anything like that, but they, the, <laughs> the inmates took over the prison just because they want opportunity, education, and, you know, workforce development stuff, right? So we know our prison system isn't working, but who is it being used on mostly, right? It's mostly black men. We know the school-to-prison pipeline is actually exacerbating the problem, but who is it being used on? Who is it being tolerated on, you know? So that's part of the problem. And people are realizing more and more or maybe just accepting the fact that, you know, and seeing the damage, advocates have been doing a great job of, getting it out there and through research and, you know, all sorts of, of legal challenges and stuff, showing how it isn't working, but it's the convenient response despite the cost, you know. Um, the harm of it is tolerated because who is being harmed, you know. Uh, we've, 
we can't forget that from the beginning of American history, you know, black males have been dehumanized, ostracized, um, and the suffering of a black male, you know, people have sort of become desensitized to it, even black men, right? So the scooter prison pipeline is tolerated because part in part, you know, of who who's affected by it. And I would also and add, you know, disabilities too. The National Disabilities Rights Network, you know, did a whole study on who's winding up in prison. So it's also, you know, the, the folks that – remember that it was – the, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act didn't pass until 1975. And the reason it was passed was there were schools – Washington, D.C., so it was mostly black uh, students with mental retardation there, and then in Pennsylvania, the Park case – and schools were just saying, you know, a priori before they even met the kids that, you know, if you're if you're in this category, we're not educating you. We don't accept certain kids with disabilities, period. And that we as a nation have not committed to providing equal educational opportunity for kids of color. What's con- disconcerting, too, is this whole sort of choice movement and how that might play out because when federal funds go to private schools or charter schools that thumb their nose at federal accountability requirements, kids with disabilities, uh, kids of color, civil rights law does not flow oftentimes and it's not, or it's not enforced. And so it is really important that the, all the folks working with kids not just think about their individual roles and their relationships, which it's really important and I'm sure it's draining, but also think about these sort of broader systemic concerns. That's kind of that duality that, you know, it's important to think about that individual focus, but also bring it back to the system because that's what's really impacting this process. And just within that vein, uh, we spoke at length about these innovative practices. So what can folks on the ground do in terms of advocacy, as well as great ideas? Uh, I'm thinking of the belt story and just looking at different ways of addressing these minor concerns, but also keeping students within schools because we know what happens when we have these harsh practices. But from a policy side, I'd love to have you both speak a little bit more about what are some policy efforts that can really reduce the growth of the pipeline? If you're in a school or a district with harsh policies and practices, just the the code of conduct, if they're still suspending kids who are truant or dress code violations, that sort of the – there's no need uh, – Syracuse, New York, you know, did away with suspensions for all kids K through 3. And throughout the state of California, they eliminated suspensions for – disruption and defiance for all kids in grades K through three. But it's really, most kids are suspended who are older than that. So it's important not to just think this as, oh, little, you know, young students need interventions. There's nothing we can do about middle school or high school. That's where most of the kids are being suspended. I think the same thing goes there. You know, so starts with the school of conduct, but also the code of conduct, uh, but aligning it with the principles of whether it's positive behavioral interventions or social emotional learning, thinking about the responses to behavioral issues as part of the educational mission of the school. So you're not trying to kick kids out. You're trying to 
educate kids so they can be successful, which means the whole child, looking at their behavior as well as academics, and oftentimes the two are related. There is a chapter in our book about Cleveland, Ohio, and setting up, instead of calling them suspensions they, in school or out of school, they, they set up learning centers that were supposed to be staffed by certified educators and social workers and counselors. And I believe this is going on in uh, Broward County. Uh, we'll be looking at it more closely in the next few months. But there are several districts that are starting to take this approach that we should be looking more closely at the needs of the kids as a system when the kids, when, when, you know, teachers are saying there are behavioral issues and maybe the teachers don't have the skills or the, the background or the experience to address them successfully within their classrooms. I do think that there's a role for higher ed, too, and in terms of training teachers and for school counselors and social workers to work with the teachers to help them see that there are other ways to work with the kids. I found as a teacher that... I did my best work when I collaborated with special educators, especially around things like behavioral issues. But and it, I just learned so much from you know effective special educators. And there are lots of things I learned in my own training, like check my ego at the door, and it, so teachers can learn not to escalate things like disrespectful behavior. I mean, remember that cell phone video? You know why a, a teacher calling a school resource officer because a, a girl won't put her cell phone away? Really? That's just outrageous. And obviously the teacher in that situation hadn't been trained to deal with the situation. So this idea that we sort of reach out to police as our first response when a well-trained teacher would have found a much more effective way to deal with, a, you know, that sort of mild breaking of a school rule. Right. And the money actually has to match. Yes. You know. And we we talk about this, but there needs like we can't have schools where you have police officers and no counselors. And the good thing is at the local level, and in some states you can even look at it at the school level, but definitely at the district level, you can see where the money is going. They're investing more into security or you know other things instead of interventions and supports. Then that needs to be checked. So definitely advocates looking at local school board budgets and that sort of thing. But there are, like Dan said, there are a lot of low-hanging fruit where it's just simple policy changes, especially with black males, because they're most susceptible to the, like the three Ds, right? Defiance, disorderly conduct, disruption, um, these very vague, subjective categories. I mean, I've had students suspended for doing like this dance called the Millie Rock where they move their arms in a circle, you know, like just dancing be disorderly conduct if it's not at the right time. So I think all schools should have a check on on that. You know, if you do recommend a student is removed for that, like you have to provide a really good explanation of how that will help, you know. So there, there are lots of things that can be done, and but the, the support and the resources, because as we talked about, like just the current structure of schools and educational facilities, they're not really focused on the whole the holistic child development. It's, it's too much focused on academic and compliance. And, you know, when you set that bird free and ask it to fly, when it starts raining or there's another tree in the way, it won't know how to navigate because we've never invested that into the school. So 
And, and social-emotional learning, the good thing about it is, you know, there are opportunities to do it. You know, I, I remember conversations with students, even when I was teaching, like, social studies and history, just pulling them to the side and talking to them about the way they responded to something that happened in the class or something they said and just sort of modeling it, right? And, and that's really important, uh, especially with black males, you know, to avoid that public reprimanding because, you know, that can lead to power struggles and back and forth and in front of peers. Anyone who deals with adolescents knows, you know, peers are very important, so you don't want to create that public display. But, you know, take those opportunities to, to share some wisdom at the individual level, advocate at the, the larger policy level, and, you know, we're going to attach the resources with links. Definitely check out schooldisciplinedata.com and you can see more local data where you're from, and we're updating that data as well. There are a lot of solutions out there. We just have to put some yeah. money behind it, put some power behind it. One of the things that I learned, I was, as a teacher, I mentioned that I was one of those teachers sending kids to the principal's office right and left. So fortunately, I had a, a principal who did not believe that was successful or appropriate uh, management and said, you need some support and training, which I got. And one of the things I learned to do was to develop a better relationship with both the parents and the kids. So I would call, I made a checklist of all the kids, especially the kids that I might have had, you know, some sort of negative feeling about. So I just made a list of all the students and and ones that I couldn't think of something positive about, I highlighted them. And then during the course of the week, I made sure that I was looking for them to do something well and making note of it. And if it was substantive enough, I would call their parents. And in some cases, this was the first positive call the parent had ever gotten about any of their kids. They, you know, so the first thing is, oh, no, Johnny's in trouble. And I said, no, no, no. Let me tell you about this poem that he wrote today. It was just amazing. And I, you know, recite the poem. It, you know, it has to be genuine. You can't just make up stuff. But it's important, you know, just as teachers who are prompted to look for bad behavior. But if you flip that and you train yourself to look for the good behavior, look for those good instances. Those calls not only improve my relationships with the parents, that student knew that I went through the effort to tell their parents something good about them. And I can tell you that definitely improved my relationship with the students. They knew that I was looking at them in a positive light and I had their back. And then when issues did arise, it was much more of a problem solving because I was someone both the parents and the student trusted we had a very supportive and trusting relationship. So then we could honestly address the misbehaviors and we could discuss what the student needed to do to be more successful and why something was not, not acceptable. But it came out of the, you know, the sort of building, the sort of, I would use the word love and trust. I think that's important to recognize. So that's really what you're encouraging those relationships. I, I would bet, you know, most of your counselors understand this better than, than most educators. But it's always important to re remind other people that you're working with as well that there are positive ways, things you can reinforce that really are tremendous. And this isn't just my anecdote. So this study that was done of every school in Chicago, that, uh, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but that did find, make a huge difference 
So they looked at the schools that were serving the kids from the highest crime neighborhoods, and they found that where schools had invested in developing this trust, not only were the sense of safety as high as some schools serving kids from the wealthiest, lowest crime neighborhoods, but also their suspension rates were much lower. That makes sense when you think about it, because when you have a good relationship with the students and the parents, you can work out problems. The idea that you're just going to get the kid out of the way is, is you know, doesn't really make any educational sense when you, when you unpack it. Well, with that, I do want to thank you both so much. I think that We've really gained a lot from this discussion, ranging from just an explanation of the school-to-prison pipeline, these individual practices and school-level practices that can really be implemented to intervene, as well as wider policy implications. And I think that the main takeaway that I've received, and I do hope that others receive as well, um, aside from things that they could do within their individual work is that this is something that we can end. This is something that we can work towards really intervening in and that there's a host of research out there and resources that can be utilized. So I do want to thank Amir and Dan for your time as well as your expertise. And I hope that others can really benefit from this information. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, our presenters, Dr. Amir Whitaker and Mr. Daniel Lawson, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we're changing the narrative together. <laughs>